I think every organization and every project team must aspire to develop a learning culture. The questions that we ask are probably there are most valuable tool, I would say, even above really strong, clean, beautiful data sets. That was Dr. Tate Kellogg of The Evaluation Coach. And in this episode, we are going to dive into why your questions are your most valuable asset and what it means to really build an effective learning culture, what it takes, the challenges that you might face doing it, and why it is so important for us as world-changing organizations to expect that we have a learning culture, whether it's at the project team level, which is what Tate specializes in, or whether it is across the entire organization. So be prepared here. We are going to dive into these learning cultures, and you will walk away prepared with some steps that you can take to start to implement one in your team, in your work, or in your organization. Hello, and welcome to Heart, Soul, and Data, where we explore the human side of analytics to help amplify the impacts of those out to change the world. With me, Alexandra Mannering. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited to have you here for so many different reasons, and I think we'll get into a lot of those fun reasons today. But I was wondering if to start with, if you could introduce yourself and where I get to talk to you from. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me, Alexandra. My name is Tate Kellogg, and what I love about your work and this kind of community that you're creating with this podcast is your real focus on making data human, this really empathetic approach to using data for strategy, for nonprofits. And I'm really all about that too. So I think that's how we originally connected. And I'm just delighted to be here and part of the conversation and part of the community. I founded a consulting organization called The Evaluation Coach. So I focus on data strategy capacity building for nonprofit program teams. I really like to focus on the program team level, as well as, you know, the whole organization. But I think there's a real lack of resources for program level teams. And I also love to work with grantee cohorts that are kind of coming together around a similar project and want to figure out what their data strategy is. And when I'm saying those words of evaluation or data strategy, for me, it's really all about building a structure that allows you to learn and learn for yourself for internal purposes for external purposes, et cetera. So my interest in that work in you know, data strategy capacity building really goes back to a job that I had over a decade ago now. It's been a little while. My background is in college access. And you know, I'm still very passionate about removing barriers to post-secondary education. And I love to work with college access organizations and all things college access. And a decade ago, I moved from Manhattan. New York City to rural Mississippi to work for a small foundation called the Woodridge Hines Education Foundation. And my job there was separate from data. It was as the director of outreach, I think, for one part of the state. So I spent most of my days putting on a blazer and going to high schools across the state and rural areas 
and talking to auditoriums and students and parents about how do you apply for college? How do you pay for college? Which was great training for a lot of things. But I also, my boss at the time said to me, you know, we really need someone who can own our data. And my thought was, well, I'm a nerd, you know, surely I can figure this out, right? And what I found is that it was a lot, A, a lot harder than I expected it to be, but B, it was also fascinating. And there's so much to it that I felt like could be really valuable for our team, as well as for other teams that I would work with in the future. So I really dove into it and have been a sucker for it ever since of wrangling data. You know, for that organization, and I think a lot of small mission-driven organizations are like this, they really wanted to be able to translate what they were doing, in this case, in the education space, to their board members, who were mostly business people who spoke the language of data or of at least quantitative numbers, but weren't really aware of the challenges of creating social change and education spaces in this case, and just needed some kind of handholding when it came to, and again, not specific to the organization. I think a lot of organizations are like this, needed some translation, if you will. And there was also, of course, massive opportunities for internal learning. And my boss at the time, very much knew that as well and just knew that there needed to be someone who would take this on. So I had all of these questions at the time when I was in that role. I was like, how do we know if what we're doing is working? And how do we define working, right? And working for whom? So there's all these equity challenges of who is being left out of whatever program that we're looking at. So there were 150 questions, you know, buzzing through my mind at all times when I was in that role. And the reality is that social change is difficult, that it's complex. We're in a complex system at all times, as you well know. And it's very difficult to disentangle what one project or one organization is really contributing in that complex system. So there's this whole world, as I discovered, of evaluation. I went on and got my doctorate and an interdisciplinary program called City Culture and Community. And I've really, and worked in applied research and evaluation in the decades since. And I really spent, I think, the rest of my career trying to help that person that I was 10 years ago, right? Trying to help staff who see the value of data to inform their strategy, as well as to communicate across audiences but aren't really sure where to begin. So I hope I can help that person in the evaluation coach. I think so often those of us who've walked the road of having to do that learning, make that learning so much more approachable because you can more easily remember what it was like to be that beginner, completely overwhelmed, lost, or even the beginner who knew where they wanted to go, but to just like clarify those steps to take. And so I really love always hearing about people like you who do have that experience of being in the trenches and like knowing what it was like to try and to find it. And the questions that you called out are such classic and critical questions, but they're easy to miss. And then even when you think to ask them, they don't have ready answers. So to, to have someone hold your hand as you go along through that and say, yes, like we're there. We know how hard this is and we'll get through it. We'll make it there. I was curious about Besides just these questions that like don't have easy answers, what do you think was the biggest challenge in taking on data for the first time? Great question. I just think there are so many tools out there that I didn't have access to because it is this whole other field. It's just another language of evaluation. I think that I, at the time, and I, I'd be curious to hear you know, what you think of this or if you had this experience, but... I thought it was all about the analytics stage, right? So 
when I went to get my doctorate, I was diving deep into methodology, which is valuable. But a lot of when you're working at a small nonprofit level, I know you've had some people on the podcast who are looking at, you know, cloud technology and, you know, much more advanced pieces. But when you're at a small nonprofit, a lot of times it's not as much about that later stage. It's really about what questions there are that need to be asked, as you well know, again, and then how you kind of build a simple system that includes which periods are going to be intentional and stop and ask along the way in order to learn and just have a culture of learning. And that's also, that's another really scary thing when you're at the beginning is being confident enough to have humility as a you know, individual, but also as a team and as a whole organization, we need more leaders who are willing to say social change is really hard. It's very complex. And how are we going to just learn, seek to learn and seek to understand where we are contributing in small and large ways and where we just need to constantly refine and do this kind of continuous learning culture, build that sort of culture. So I think that if I could go back, that's some of what I would want to impart at the beginning stage. It's interesting for me coming as a scientist, and I grew up in the geekiest, I've learned least normal family. And so that's always just been second nature to question why do we do things to show, you know, how do you show evidence that the thing that you're doing is the best way of doing something or being able to like dig up and provide evidence to back up a position of doing something. And I realized that for so long, that's not how data has been used, that most instances of data being put in like 50 years ago are because the grantor required it, right? You must do this thing. Or from a sort of sense of like external accountability, like we don't trust you with the money we're giving you or we want to rate you against other nonprofits. And so we're going to use this as like a measuring stick that you know likely will find you wanting on. But what you're describing is something completely different, right? What you're describing is using data to help you improve even just a little bit. So even if we're tackling these really gnarly, hairy, nearly impossible problems, but not completely impossible that will use data to get us just a little bit closer or to get just a little bit more insight than we could have without data so that maybe we can move that needle just a little bit farther. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about using data to help you learn, like about that structure that helps you learn. Because I think that's a space that is not naturally where we go in the nonprofit world when we talk about data. I'd love to. So well, first of all, I think it's fascinating to learn about the history of data in this space and how it's used. And as I have gotten more into, I have you know taught philanthropy classes and done workshops with funders. And I think funders have a large role, as you hinted at, in this space when it comes to allowing for space for trust and learning and saying, we're all in this together, trying to figure out how to solve problems. And what can we learn along the way that will contribute to that rather than prove that you did something X, Y, or Z. And that is a huge challenge in the current system and one that a lot of funders, I think, are addressing and unpacking. But really, the history of philanthropy is really rooted in this country and the Industrial Revolution and some of those big names that we think about, Carnegie and, and others who wanted to make this very numbers-oriented and kind of tracking. So anyway, digression, but very interesting and important to know where we've been in order to figure out where we're going. I am all about an asset-based approach to this work. I feel like it's very countercultural, and, and certainly we never want to make it sound like a 
the nonprofit space is all rainbows and sunshine. There's lots of challenges, but to stop and say, in any project, what is going well that we can build upon? There's some good research that suggests that A, is not how we do most problem solving or nonprofit work, but B, it is more energizing approach to think that way. So I think that a lot of nonprofits are doing amazing work in communities. I work mostly in education. So a lot of these nonprofits that I've worked with are changing the lives of students during crisis, both personal and, you know, global crises that are going on. And it's, it's very important to, to think about all the good that's going on that we can build upon for building data structures. So I like to say, that nonprofit program level staff are experts. They're experts at what they're doing in terms of program implementation, especially those that have been doing this a long time. If they're in the community, if they're from the community, they know a lot about the community. They know a lot about doing this particular program every year. They've done it again and again, but it's a different skill set of program implementation than data strategy, where you really need to stop and take a step back and be very intentional at thinking through. And you're not going to just get a learning culture at an organization or a program team overnight. You have to build that structure, which is what you were just hinting at. So with the evaluation coach, I have developed this four-step process. That's really exactly that. It's kind of the metaphor I like to use is it's like constructing a building and creating a structure so for these early stage teams. So the four stages are, one is understanding why data matters, how it's relevant to your project or your work. And I like to call that the plan your blueprint stage, you know, take a step back and understand why we're doing this and what kind of plan you want to make. The second stage is kind of outcomes harvesting. So identifying together what change you're trying to create or contribute to. And I do in my work, several workshops that are pretty hands-on where it's really pulling out this list of changes that you're trying to create at different levels and with different stakeholders that you're working with. So I like to say that's the kind of constructor foundation. That's the basis of this structure that you're building. And just to take a step back there, I think that a lot of organizations or a lot of project teams can put together a logic model where they kind of list out outcomes, but you don't always, without this process of maybe just stopping within your team and look, taking a step back and looking at change short-term versus and long-term and how it fits together, maybe you're not thinking through how one stage leads to another and what questions you want to ask. So that's, I think, the key part of that piece. And then the third stage is operationalizing those outcomes. What are we going to measure? What's important to know? What are we going to stop and learn along the way? It's kind of assembling the frame of this structure. And then finally, telling your program story. And that part of the storytelling, I think, has been massively underdone in data and evaluation. I have been doing this for over a decade now. And that was the piece I had to really dive in and learn a lot about because there's so many different stories that your data might be telling you. A lot of the time when we think of data, we think of jumping to building a dashboard, say, and I, I've worked with organizations that have the dashboards, but they maybe don't have a structure in place to stop and look at, you know, what can we learn here and how are we going to use that from here? So telling the story, I think, is a key part. I think having those steps is really helpful because it does really outline that it's not just all about the measurement or the analytics or the actual data pieces, right? There's only really one step, three, that's going to involve actual collection of numbers and processing of said numbers, maybe a little bit in four if you're talking about like dashboard development, but really storytelling to your point is not about the actual creation of the data. It's looking at it and saying, what are we learning from 
What is this actually telling us and how do we put that into play to create learning rather than just a number on a screen? It's nice if we see that this program is having a different outcome than that program, but if it doesn't impact what we're doing, you haven't reached that point where it's woven into your story and your actions. And so I think you do have this beautiful view that gives a path forward for data not to just be another chore or not to just be another waste of time or not to just be something else that is hard and incomprehensible and overwhelming, but actually becomes part of the fabric of your organization, right? It's part of the structure of what you do. And I think that's really powerful. As you've put this kind of structure in place with those project teams, which I love your focus on that too, because I think that gets missed sometimes too, you know, that data people like to think there will be other data people who can just do the work, right? That are data geeks and really focus on the data. But oftentimes in nonprofits, you don't have somebody who's full-time data. And the project teams are the ones who are the experts on the stuff that actually is being done. So you need them to be critically involved, even if you're lucky enough to have data people. So I love that focus. But as you try to move the project teams through those four steps, what are the most common barriers that you see or challenges that kind of get people stuck as they're moving through those processes? It's a big question. (laughs) No, it's a great question. So, I mean, there are barriers and challenges that come up each stage. Absolutely. And so when I have done this with cohorts, I think that people, teams are in really different places. But I think one challenge is one that I mentioned a second ago, which is thinking you know, right? If you apply for a grant, say, you have to go through the motion of creating oftentimes the logic model or some version of writing out what you think will happen. And don't get me wrong, lots of organizations are excellent at that. And you know, there's lots of people doing great work at that. But sometimes you can go through that piece with one person who sits down and writes that application without bringing in a lot of voices. So it's very interesting when a team comes together and they don't agree on what type of change they're trying to create. That happens all the time because it's kind of scary, first of all, to put your stick in the ground sometimes. But for example, I am working with a team right now that is five years into their project. It's a substantial sized project within the civic engagement space in higher ed. And it's, you know, a million and a half dollar program that has been very well designed and created, but it took us several sessions of going through like, okay, but what change are we really trying to create here for those that participate, for the university as a whole, for the community more broadly? So thinking you can you know that thinking that one person will fill it out and they'll know is very different than the participatory approach of bringing many stakeholders together and kind of wrestling through like, no, we're saying this is what we're trying to do and this is how we will measure it. And if we find X, Y, or Z, we will make whatever changes to the program going forward. So I think the participatory part is really fascinating to watch unfold. You know, on the show, you've had several people mention one of my favorite things, which is data parties. So I think participatory approaches have been well-featured on this show. And that's really at the later stage, right? So you actually have the data and you're bringing in different stakeholders to talk through like, okay, why do we think this is happening? And that is such a more aligned conversation than a one-dimensional report that someone reads or doesn't read. And I'm sure I've written plenty of reports that nobody ever read in the evaluation side. But bringing, com- coming together around a conversation about why we think things are unfolding is a different approach and one that I think creates a meaningful learning culture at an organization. 
That's a great point, that it's one thing to talk about participatory data analysis, meaning we've already done three quarters of the work, and now we're going to bring people in to talk about it. But what you're really emphasizing, and I think this is really critical, is at the beginning, before you ever define what you're going to collect or before you collect a single number or before you've even decided, like you said, the change that you're trying to achieve, that you're bringing people in who represent all the voices that should be heard to have that discussion. And I get how easy it would be to assume, yeah, we're all on the same page. We all know what we want to do. We all know what we're trying to achieve. But then realizing that maybe you generally do, but the nuance when you actually get down to, oh, yeah, we all think it should work, but what does work mean? Yes. We don't actually have a shared definition of what it means for this program to work. And I'm putting that in air quotes. But the idea that we need to have all those voices come in and ha do the hard work of hashing it out and maybe disagreeing and having to compromise, but having everyone have a chance to be heard and then buy into from the very beginning the change you're trying to achieve and how you've defined that and how you will measure it going forward. And then and only then do you move into the work of trying to collect data about it. Yeah, I love your emphasis, Alexandra, on the beginning. I think that in practice, it's it's sometimes that way, right? And it's really strong when it's that way, when you're starting from kind of a design thinking process where you are looking at data, like here's the market, here's the problem and, you know, what's actually happening and then designing a program based on that and bringing stakeholders together to say what kind of change do we want to create based on what we know. That's amazing. And I've been a part of doing this in that way. A lot of times, of course, they have been doing this for a little while. So the example I just thought of was, you know, I'm working right now with a, a team that's five years in, but the grant's about to end and they want to bring it into the institution and make it an institutionalized program. And so, yes, it is usually a critical moment or maybe they have a new grant. And these are all great times to stop, you know, for your listeners to think through, like, when do you want to redesign or re-envision or hopefully you're doing a data party every year, but it'd be great if you're doing it more often or if you're bringing data to every meeting or at least quarterly, whenever data is coming in, you're embedding very intentionally when you want to stop and learn along the way. Hopefully that's good for people to hear and remember that it's never too late to go back yeah. to the quote unquote beginning. Yeah, even it's always if, the beginning. Right. It's always the beginning. And and that's something that I think is also often missed in conversations around data. And in my past life, I often would blame IT for this, which was maybe unfair. But oftentimes, right, like in tech or IT, right, you define a problem, you design a solution, you implement the solution, and you move on to the next problem. It's this yeah. very linear process. Whereas really learning is cyclical and at, or at best it's spiral. You hope that you return to the beginning, but a little bit higher than you were before. But there yeah. has to be this sort of constant return and reevaluation and this idea that, hey, maybe you didn't do a fully invested participatory design to what you're doing, but it's never too late to come back and revisit that and redesign and adjust and get new input and refine and maybe even change the definition of what you were trying to achieve. Like, that's OK if it's different than what you were doing before or if you didn't have a definition before, you can bring a definition in. Now, I think of the proverb that the best time to start plant a tree was 20 years ago, but the next best time is now. Yes, well said. And so it, it can happen here, right, that, that you can come back and revisit regardless of where along this process you are, even if you are at the end of the grant period. And maybe this isn't a project that's going to necessarily continue, but you could go back and look at that definition and maybe it will plant a seed for a future project. Absolutely. Yes. Now, 
if an organization is putting this in place, whether it's just a program team or an entire organization, what is reasonable for them to expect out of this process? Like, I think sometimes the examples of really successful analytics come from the wrong model spaces for us. Google or all of the big Silicon Valley organizations, right? They're sort of the poster children for success with analytics. But I think that they're terrible examples when we're trying to talk about social change. And so what are reasonable expectations for success, however we're going to define it here, in implementing a learning structure for a small nonprofit working on a really hard problem? I'm all about reasonable, you know, with the evaluation coach, I'm just working with the type of teams that you're talking to, you know, and hopefully that's the audience. I know that's the audience you're reaching with this podcast. So I think we need to be reasonable about what kind of data we can really collect, knowing how thin we are stretched. And there are lots of reasonable data collection approaches. You know, I was trained as were you as an academic, meaning I had got my PhD and worked with a lot of academics and on academic teams. And I worked on teams where it was a 10-year-long research project and I spent entire years of my life doing qualitative coding. Whereas when I work with teams now, I always encourage them to do qualitative data collection, but it needs to be very accessible. It needs to be take great notes along the way about changes and decisions you're making and then lift those out as learnings as strategic moments. And, you know, those are process and process evaluation, right? And after a event that you're holding, you know, be very intentional, I think, is the short answer to your question. So if we're very intentional and, and learning oriented around an event, we beforehand go in saying, here are, here's the type of change we're trying to create for participants, for behavior, for community. And we're thinking about what data we need to understand to the extent that happened or it was perceived to happen. So maybe that is a survey. I think, you know, do a lot of surveys, but we all know we're also a little surveyed out sometimes. So there are other really accessible methodologies such as, you know, what's one word at the end of this webinar that we can ask everybody to write into the chat or one question they left with and how can we analyze that easily to understand what they perceived that they learned along the way? Or do we have five key partners that we can ask the same questions of and call maybe in two months and ask if you know they felt like behavior had changed at their organization after something that happened? So the examples I'm giving are very accessible. They're also pretty education-oriented. So I'm sure in the health field where you work, it might be a little bit different, but absolutely there's existing data a lot of the times that we're not thinking through and associations and other resources like that can help us with common measures and what we can think through in terms of like the early stage data that might be out there that we can use. But a lot of times it's also data is qualitative and it's stories and it's it can be accessible. It can be done by any size organization. I think every organization and every project team must aspire to develop a learning culture that is the root of what I do and what I think all you know data strategy should be about just constantly coming back and asking questions and thinking through what we can learn and how we can try to get better. And the questions that we ask, probably they're our most valuable tool, I would say, even above really strong, clean, beautiful data sets, what we're asking of them. And questions are very different depending on which audience we're talking about, right? So 
internally, there's questions like, what is the story in terms of where we came from? What's our story in terms of where we want to grow? Where can we be improving? And then also, it's very important to think about barriers, right? So we should just assume that there are always structural barriers, but also barriers for your particular program that are unintentionally created. So, you know, I could go on a tangent on that front, but just thinking through who's not being reached very broadly at every stage of your program and really looking at your program cycle. Those are the types of tools that I think every single team, no matter how small, can really do more when it comes to creating social change. The emphasis on that learning culture, I think, cannot be understated, right? This, the fact that you should expect out of engaging in any kind of analytics that it's not just about let's make a pretty graph. It's about enhancing the way that we do what we do, which requires us to learn from the past and do something different for the future to get a better outcome. And I think, and I mean, I'll take full responsibility that so many of us data people are not necessarily the most like people-oriented folks. <laughs> so when you're really like heavy analytics, it's easy to miss how important the people are and that it's all about the people. It's all about what we do and how we engage with the analytics. And you can have the best data product in the world and it's useless if it's not part of a really powerful learning culture. And so that every organization really should have that expectation of themselves. We are going to build that and we'll have that. And then out of that, you say, OK, well, then if we're going to learn, what information do we need to have the best learning? And to your point, actually, the data could be quite simple and that if it's not accessible, again, it doesn't matter how fancy or great it is. It needs to be something that can be put into service of the learning. And so very simple. Like I love the idea of just ask for one word. Because you could do analytics on like how many positive words versus negative words did we get. The idea of like what questions are left for people, right? That can open up really interesting things of if you got no questions on a topic, obviously either you covered it really well or it's not something people are interested in. So you don't have to focus on that going forward. But if there's all sorts of questions about the same thing, like it gives you really valuable information for improving what you have without having had to have someone fill out a big boring survey. And so I think that idea of thinking creatively of how to get exactly the pieces of information you need without it being this hugely complex cloud-based whatever, right? You don't need to have all those fancy tools. You just need to be intentional, as you mentioned, and focused on those learning outcomes that you need. I think that's really important. And I love the questions we ask are our most valuable tools. Like that is Yeah. Well, and it's fun that there are very robust organizations that are leading the charge and they should be, you know, I'm sure you have some listeners in that world of impact evaluation. And, but for the smaller teams, they could be looking at what research is out there and also seeing how that research that exists already is applicable to what they're doing. You're trying to make a decision about whether to do, you know, teach this topic or that topic, what exists already in the research. That's another piece that I didn't mention that I think it's massively valuable just to not, you know, not dismiss the big ones, the big fish. They are hopefully leading the charge in terms of creating some real knowledge that the rest of us, the smaller teams, can also grasp onto. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the idea is that we live up to what we are capable of doing. And if you are one of those huge, if you're the Gates Foundation, we are going to expect a little bit more in terms of what you're doing. And others will benefit from it. 
So if you're trialing new measurement methods and figuring out which is the right one to evaluate teachers, like what's the most accurate way of evaluating teachers to improve student performance, once the Gates does all the hard work in doing that, the rest of us could pick some of those things that they learned and implement them and measure them in our own small way. So I think there's huge value in looking outside your organization and seeing what else is out there. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm a project manager listening or I'm a participant of a program team in a nonprofit, what are some things then that I could do right now? Right? Maybe I'm not able to come and revamp our entire organization's learning culture, but Mm-hmm. I would like to do something right now to kind of take that next step. What would be a good first or next step for me to consider? Well, not to, you know, repeat myself too much, but I think intentionality is the big key first step. And if I was in that role, which I have been, I've had that title before, perhaps you have to, I would look at my program cycle. I would take a step back and write down every month and what is happening with the program in that month. Is it recruitment time? Is it the time when you are applying for certain grants? What's the cycle? And where at each place do you want to ask critical questions that will improve before, rather than just this kind of hamster wheel that is easy to create within under-resourced nonprofits where you are just going and going and going and you do it and then you jump back into doing it again. You start all over for the next three-month cycle. And I think the most critical thing you can do is after whatever period, whatever's a good stopping place, you make a note to have, you know, there's great tools with before action reviews and after action reviews. And that would be where I would start, would be trying to figure out what went well, And what do we want to change going forward? And a lot of organizations do this, right? I'm not like offering some magic toolbox, but I have been at and I've worked with many organizations that are, again, under-resourced and they're working really hard and they're doing great work. And when I was a data analyst at a small foundation and I wasn't sure where to start, I think that strategy of just embedding question asking and question answering would have been a good idea for me in terms of the starting place. I agree. And I think when you sit down and you just say, well, what data would I need? That can feel very overwhelming. But you know your program. So you can very easily write down that program cycle. You know all of that information by heart. And I bet you would find you're once the expert. You, yeah, you're the expert in that. And once you've written it down, as you look at each of those steps, those questions will come more readily to mind. And I think phrasing it as, what are your key questions rather than what data do you need? We know the questions. We might not think of them in terms of data. But to your point, once you ask that question, right, like if you're doing enrollment, one of your questions might be, how do I expand enrollment? Or how do I reach underserved populations? That's a perennial question I'm always asking myself when I get to that enrollment month. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a question that then could start to be answered by data. And and so you get really clear now by putting that question. Now, I'm always asking that. How do I better reach reach an unreached population or or an unrepresented population? Or how do I do this more quickly? Right. This month takes over my life and I can't handle it. How could I be more efficient in this space? And then those questions will lead you to pieces of information that you then can start to put in place and be able to measure. I think one of the things, too, along your You mentioned earlier maximizing your value to learning when you're trying to think about what you do. Like you can't do everything. So pick the things that maximize that that value to learning. And I think in this space, when you're talking about those questions, you might have 
dozens or hundreds even of questions and you can't focus on all of them. So you could even take it one step farther and say, which of these questions will I have the biggest impact on? Like which one could, imp if, could I learn the most from and apply most readily and I can kind of let go of the ones I can't do? Yeah, I'll keep them. I won't throw them away. <laughs> we can come back to them. But at least I can start with the ones that most intentionally will have an impact rather than just sort of wasted effort. Yes, I love the, I, that's another of the tools that I really enjoy learning more about is this idea of this learning agenda that you're kind of always asking, this running list of questions, kind of like academics have a research agenda where they are focused on a very, very narrow topic and they're always trying to think through what they can add to the field when gaps are out there and kind of creating that research agenda over time. That's the same idea where you don't have to answer everything right away, right? You want to start somewhere and Every organization, every team should have a learning agenda, a list of questions that they are exploring when it comes to their different audiences and really who wants to learn alongside them. I love that idea of a learning agenda. Yes, that, that you're intending to get somewhere and you don't have to do it all today. Yes, important. So, well, Tate, I know we could talk for hours and hours and hours about all of this stuff and it is always wonderful to find a like-minded soul in, in this space. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. If people wanted to learn more about you and the Evaluation Coach, where could they go? Yes, I have a website, theevalcoach.com. I have a resource on there that is a, really, it's kind of a list of questions. It's supposed to be just a starting place. It's called the four people who want to learn from your program. And it's really designed to help program level staff consider what questions that they should be asking what does their team need to know in order to improve? What do their external supporters want to know in order to support them, including funders, right? The board. What does your community need to know in order to really learn alongside you and bring those that are either benefiting from your services or a part of your broader community? And then the broader field. We often forget if you're doing this work and yeah, you're an expert in your program, you have something to share with the broader field that to benefit someone else. So it's important to remember that aspect of learning as well. So you can find that, but really just find me on LinkedIn. I'd love to connect. That's how Alexandra and I connected. We love to talk to data nerds. So if you've made it this far in the conversation, that's probably you. And I, you know, really enjoy these ideas, these conversations about really focusing on making this stuff accessible because there's such good resources that exist and tools that exist out there. And you know, Alexandra and I are determined to bring them to all of those who are doing good work in the world. So thank you again for having me. Amen to that. And it was such a joy. And just for those listening to find Tate on LinkedIn, it would be T-A-I-T and then Kellogg with two L's and two G's. So thank definitely you so connect. much. Actually. Of course. And we'll, cereal. Right, exactly. And so we'll make sure we also have all of that in our show notes. So feel free to head over to heartsolddata.com. Find Tate's episode there with all of the show notes. So thank you so much. Thank you. That was Tate Kellogg of The Evaluation Coach. And if you are really ready to take those next big steps into creating a learning culture at your organization or within your team, within your program that you manage, recommend checking her out at theevalcoach.com. That link is in the show notes below, as well as on our website. This is episode 47. So if you go to heartsolddata.com and you look for episode 47, you will find all of the show notes and her links there as well. I think if you take the time to do her action step and outline your program cycle at that monthly level or whatever 
time period makes sense for the things that you do, you will start to find those intervention steps, those critical questions that you really do need the answers to. And you can start to figure out how you could get the information to more effectively answer those questions. And you'll start to see how having that information on hand, being prepared with the questions, right? The questions we ask are our most valuable tool, as Tate says. Then you will start to be able to really drive learning and improvement in your organization out of the data rather than having data just be one more burden. And Tate mentioned that one of the biggest challenges she sees is that oftentimes organizations or teams just aren't aware of what kind of tools exist out there that could help them with their data, with turning data into information that actually would answer questions. And in two episodes, we are going to have a guest on episode 49 who will talk about one of those tools. So if you are interested in learning about another analytic tool, I definitely recommend you come back for episode 49. So be sure to subscribe if you want an alert when that episode drops. Thank you so much for joining me today with Tate. I hope that you are inspired to take some steps towards creating that learning culture and that you're inspired to see data not just as one more task you need to do, but as an incredible tool to help you do what you do better because the world needs what you do. Thank you. Take care and see you in the next episode. You have been listening to Heart, Soul, and Data. This podcast is brought to you by Moroccanus, an analytics education, consulting, and data services company devoted to helping nonprofits and social enterprises amplify their impacts and thrive through data. You can learn more at Maracanos.com, M-E-R-A-K-I-N-O-S.com.